Welcome to the Skill Stadium, a podcast for the skilled trades, where you can learn about the opportunities and benefits of working in the skilled trades from business owners, hiring managers, and the hardworking, talented professionals. And now, your host, Keith Williams. Welcome to the Skill Stadium podcast, episode 99. Thank you for tuning in. I'm your host, Keith Williams. Every week, we feature professionals in the skilled trades, business owners, educators, people doing the work, giving real-world advice. I had three requests if you enjoyed my podcast and brought you value. Please subscribe to the podcast, leave a five-star rating, just click that five times, and write a review, perhaps. Share one thing you enjoyed or something you learned on the podcast. Your support means the world to me. I really appreciate it. And thank you again for tuning in. Today's guest is from Ridgetown. Ontario. That's in Canada, for folks who don't know. It's halfway between Detroit and Toronto. He now lives in London, Ontario. My guest is a red seal sheet metal worker, supervisor, and safety manager with over 18 years of experience in the business. My guest is most proud of being involved in projects on buildings like jails, hospitals, and sports arenas. And during my guest's free time, he enjoys going to concerts, hockey games, fishing, and is a die-hard Boston Red Sox fan. Please welcome Nicholas Tontes to the Skill Stadium podcast. Thanks, Keith. Thanks for having me on. My pleasure. My pleasure. Nicholas, how are you doing this evening? I'm, I'm wonderful. Excellent. Nicholas, I got to ask you, first of all, how did you become, you know, growing up in Canada, how did you become a Red Sox fan of all teams, especially if you have the Blue Jays? Well, that's, that's the thing. We have the Blue Jays about an hour and a half away. And I tried to get into the Blue Jays when Joe Carter won the World Series uh, back, I think it was 93. I lived for that moment. But over the years, I just became more entrenched with the Red Sox culture. I found the history of the Red Sox, the, the history of Fenway Park to be so exciting and, and interesting. And I just followed along over the years and I just pulled away from the Blue Jays and fell right for the Red Sox, fell in love with them. All right, I'm going to say one more thing, and I hope you get the right answer for this one. You're not a Bruins fan, are you? I am not a Bruins fan, no. <laughs> okay. <laughs> you know that would be very dangerous being in Toronto, being a Bruins fan. All right, well, that's good. I'm glad you cleared that up. <laughs> Baseball, it's okay. You can be a Red Sox fan in Toronto, but I think a Boston fan, that would be in a lot of trouble there. <laughs> it would definitely be a tough door. Definitely. So tell me, how did you get connected with the Minister of Labor to shoot? You know, you shot a video promoting the skilled trades. I'm curious, how did you connect? How did that happen? I'm pretty active on Twitter and uh, I'm, I speak towards skilled trade advocacy on Twitter quite often. And the Minister of Labor in the last several years has really made it his mandate to push skilled trades, to push the benefits, uh, not necessarily chasing that four to five year university degree, but rather jumping into a trade, getting right into the field right away, earning that money. And I follow a lot of his content. I retweet a lot of his content and I just speak to my experiences in the trade. And about a year ago, my son became uh, an apprentice as well. And he works alongside with me. And then I speak to those experiences working alongside my son. And he just thought it was a really fascinating story hearing a father and son duo and passing my skill set down to him and my experiences down to him. And he really wanted to capture that because a lot of his work is centralized right now into spreading that message of skilled trades to younger 
to a younger audience and into uh, colleges and to, to elementary schools. So he really wanted just to capture that dynamic and use that as a kickoff to his Code Trades campaign. No, that makes sense. That makes sense. It's amazing the power of social media because all of this started with you getting engaged on Twitter. And, you know, I think we talked about it before, you know, we're of an age where we didn't grow up with that stuff, you know, like, uh, you know, we didn't, <laughs> I think, you know, you know, unless you're in your twenties, you didn't grow up with it. It's just, that's just a fact. <laughs> so uh, I think we appreciate it. Yeah, it really is. I, we did speak to that. I swore that I would never join Twitter. I never understood the, the concept of Twitter or, or the reasoning. I, I saw Twitter to be a cesspool at times of negativity. And I, I was, I was certain I would never join that. And I just decided one day to start spreading my message and spreading my experiences and see where it went. And uh, it is, it's a very, very powerful tool and it helps you get connected with other like-minded people in the industry. And that's what I found to be most beneficial with uh, Twitter. Definitely. I can tell you, and not just Twitter, but I, I think for me, LinkedIn, I would say more than half the people that I've had as guests on my podcast, I've connected through LinkedIn. And it's, it, like I said, it's just powerful. Like I said, I came up in a time where I'm sure you can remember this. We had yellow pages and, you know, there was no internet. So, and I know I'm dating myself, but, you know, a lot of people are in that situation. And so I have a great appreciation for it. And I think the platforms, what's more important, it's the people on the platforms that I think that really makes a difference. Like I said, I meet a lot of good people like yourself. And uh, it, I, I just, it just amazes me how you can connect with people all over the world. I'm in Atlanta, you're in. Ontario, it's, you know, it, that's the power of these, of these platforms. Absolutely agree. So Nicholas, tell me, you know, for people who are not aware, what does a sheet metal worker do? Because there are people who don't know that profession. Absolutely. And that's been one of my biggest, I guess, gripes over the years working in the trade as a sheet metal worker. There really isn't a lot of advertisement out there as to what we do. If you were to say, I'm a plumber or I'm an electrician, immediately people draw a correlation to what that role is. But when it comes to a sheet metal worker, people are always confused. They think I work in a factory building raw material or, or I work on a line. And in reality, a sheet metal worker is a very, it's a very wide ranging trade. What I specialize in is HVAC systems, pardon me, HVAC systems, installing uh, sheet metal uh, heating systems. I do a lot of work in schools, hospitals, uh, jails, things of that nature. But a sheet metal worker can also be a flat metal roofer. Sheet metal worker can also be installing uh, welded exhaust hoods in a kitchen system or dust collection systems in a uh, woodworking shop. Essentially, it's just a sheet metal worker is a, is a person that provides an outlet, I guess, for that ventilation of air or, or dust collection debris, essentially in that manner. Okay. And it's essential to the equipment. So it's just one of those things that people take for granted and don't realize this is something that is essential, you know, to, 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 to putting that equipment together. Absolutely. And that's, it's one of the most overlooked things when, when I say to somebody that I'm a sheet metal worker, well, I, I install the, the HVAC in your house, the ductwork. And then as soon as I say that I install the ductwork in somebody's house, then they understand right away and they're, oh, okay, you're the person that brings air to where, where I want it, right? And, but yeah, it is, it's much more encompassing than, than just simply that. And that's, that's the frustration of my trade. Yeah. And I'll tell you, I've learned, I've learned about these trades just from doing these podcasts and meeting people. And like I said, I never, I always want to make sure I cover, 
you know, what, you know, the importance of the trade and what people do. Tell me something, you know, when you started this profession, what was the toughest part of the job when you were just getting started? The toughest part of my job, aside from trying to gain the respect of my coworkers or the trust of my coworkers, was just understanding how heating systems worked or reading a set of blueprints or reading a set of shop drawings. There's a lot of literature that, that goes along with working in the skilled trade. When I first got into being a sheet metal worker, I just presumed that I was slamming, installing ductwork in the air. And there's so much more to understanding the trade than that. You have to understand duct designing systems, fan laws. Uh, it's just, it, it's a lot of a uh, lot to take in. But definitely getting the trust of my coworkers, because you were working with men and women on lifts with heavy machinery using heavy equipment and one mistake could cost somebody their life. So it, it was really... It was really showing those people that I was working alongside that I was taking my role seriously and that they could trust that I would make good decisions, which I learned, obviously, from working alongside experienced journey people. I've talked to a lot of skilled trades people, did an interview with an elevator technician, and he is always emphasizing safety. I see him on all of his posts, even when, he, even when I interviewed him. So I would imagine it's the same thing for you. I mean, it's in your title as part of your job. It is. I've, uh, I don't, I'm not really extremely, I'm not really sure what brought me to the fascination of health and safety. I've never personally been injured badly at work. I've never worked alongside somebody that's been badly injured at work, but it, just knowing that I can come home safe every day, see my son, see my family is important to me. And it's important to teach everyone around me, especially the young people coming into this trade. The importance of that kind of uh, concept or that kind of mentality, that culture that, that sometimes are lacking, I guess, at different companies. Safety here in Canada has gotten so much better over the last several years, like from, especially from when I started in the trade. But we do have, a, we do have a, an issue with uh, older journey people like myself that say, I've done that a hundred times. And it's always a hundred and first time that I'll get you. And uh, it, it, it's my desire, it's my role or, to make sure that doesn't happen. So do you feel like the older, more seasoned people are more likely to, to do something that's unsafe because they're accustomed to it, or do you think it's the younger people who are less experienced? I would definitely say it's the, the older people because they've got a built-in complacency with them where they have done that exact same maneuver, role, task a thousand times, and they've never been injured. So at times they'll cut corners or they'll, they'll get a little bit sloppy. Whereas I find the younger generation, especially now, they're much more aware of their health and safety rights, their roles, their responsibilities, and they want to be in an industry where they are coming home feeling safe every day. Definitely. And they've got a lot of years to live, so. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so, yes, I would imagine that's important to them. Tell me something, speaking of young people, please share why young people should consider this profession. I think young people sh should consider not only my profession, but skill trades as a whole, because they're extremely lucrative. They're a lucrative career with endless possibilities. Just in my role alone as a sheet metal worker, I have been able to advance into roles of health and safety. I've been able to work on bargaining committees, become very influential on my joint health and safety committees. There's opportunities right now in my industry where I could become an estimator or I could become an owner if I wanted to. Sheet metal, especially as a sheet metal worker, the, the trade itself is one of the dying art forms, I believe. 
we are one of the few trades that still takes a raw product, like a flat piece of metal, we turn it into something. Whereas I would say other trades, they can go to the supplier, buy their material, but we still have to go onto a job site, take a set of blueprints, and turn that blueprint into reality. And because we're typically the biggest product on the job, the biggest material on the job, you have to be, you have to have a sharp mind and you have to be keen on what you're doing with sheet metal. And I think that's, that's probably one of the, sorry. No, I was going to say, do you think that the trade has changed the least of all the trades? Like, do you think it's kind of remained the same over the years? I think as a, as sheet metal workers go, I think our trade has stayed very much the same over the years. And we still do a lot of practice in, in our trade schools when, when we're taught as part of our apprenticeship, things that are very, very outdated. And I'm not entirely sure why that is still something that we're doing. We're looking to kind of revolutionize some of the practices that we're being taught because they are outdated. But definitely our trade is very much the same as it was uh, 50 years ago. You don't see that. No, definitely not. Because a lot of the trades now, technology has affected them. So that's, that's very interesting. And that's the feeling I got. I was just listening to you when you were saying, it's a sheet of metal, you know, and it's the only raw material. I'm like, no, there's nothing that can change about that. Do you think that fewer people are going into your trade as a result and that there's a concern of trying to replenish that? I'm sorry, do, you, do I feel there's fewer people coming in? Do you, yeah, do you think there are fewer people going into your trade as a result of that? Is that a concern for you? I'm not entirely sure why fewer people coming into our and do the sheet metal trade, but I, I do believe you're, you're correct on that, that less people are coming into it. I just think it, it doesn't have... No, no, I was asking. I didn't know. I was asking. I didn't know if they were. I was just asking. I wasn't saying. Oh, no. I was just asking. No, I, I definitely feel that less people are getting into this trade because there's not a lot of awareness what a sheet metal worker does. You look at any ad campaign that you ever see, and you never see an ad campaign for a sheet metal worker uh, targeted towards young people. And I think that's that's part of the, it's the issue of trades as a whole. There's not a lot of, until recently, there hasn't been a lot of, I guess what I'm, I'm not entirely sure what I'm looking for here, but broadcasting of what each skilled trade does individually. Hey, Nick, can you tell us the process of becoming a metal worker and what kind of income, you know, ballpark figure can new people expect to earn just going into this industry? Sure. Uh, the process for becoming a Red Seal sheet metal worker here in Canada is a, it's a five-year apprenticeship with three terms of schooling. So the entry level is you find a sponsor to sign you up and you hit the ground running from there. Each term of your apprenticeship, or sorry, each term is uh, like I said, five terms. It's 1,800 hours per term. And after 9,000 hours, you're, you can uh, become a licensed uh, sheet metal worker. Entry level figures, it varies depending if you're unionized, non-unionized. But across the board right now, a young person jumping in as a first-term apprentice could be making anywhere between twenty to twenty-four dollars an hour. Jumping into yeah, it's extremely it's extremely lucrative for a young person. Yeah, and I imagine it goes up as they get more more experience and as they become certified. As Absolutely. Yeah, I think uh, by, by the time that you're finished, you could be making anywhere between eighty-five to one hundred and ten thousand dollars a year Canadian. So it's a it's a pretty decent living. Definitely, definitely. You know, you think about that college, there are a lot of college students, university students who don't make that coming out of school mm -hmm. and they're acquiring debt. So there's definitely a benefit, folks, for um, really considering the skill trades and this particular profession. So, uh, you know, it's a great, uh, it's a great career option. Nick, can you tell us what makes someone a good performer in this industry? So how do you determine that somebody's doing a good job and that they're a high-level performer. 
That's a pretty tough, tough question. I think it varies from person to person. And ideally, you look for there's certain strengths that you'll find in people that may not be strengths uh, in other people. Some people are meant to be leaders. And I think you can identify that pretty quickly with, with uh, the people that you're working with. Some are very keen to take that, that role of authority and build on that, where others are very content with maintaining a certain role that they feel comfortable in. Uh, but at the end of the day, it's attention to detail. It's about caring about your craft, uh, having a passion to be proud of what you do. And I think that all is, it's pretty evident really quickly when you're working alongside somebody that is keen on, on the career they've chosen. Do you think there's additional studies or things that they can learn uh, in terms of extra education that can help them in this profession? Oh, absolutely. We have tons of training facilities around here that are uh, covered by our employer. We have a, it's a worker health and safety, or, sorry, the Workman's uh, Safety Insurance Board here that covers a lot of these programs. Uh, the employer pays the dues and it offers free training for workers here in, in Ontario. And you can go to brush up on supervisory skills, uh, health and safety skills, any kind of defensive driving. And all these things don't really seem like a lot when you start identifying them individually. They do add up on, on a construction site. There's a lot of key concepts, uh, auditing skills. These all come into play on a construction site, especially when you're working in sheet metal. You can take time management courses, just things of that nature. It'll help you if you actually want to have a leadership role one day, kind of hone in on that, that craft that you want to, or that role that you want to fill. Yeah. And what I like, Nick, too, is that the company pays for it. So this is, you're just really investing your time. Absolutely. And it's it's all about what you want to do with your own your own career, right? If you want to position yourself where you can advance, you've got to take those steps yourself sometimes too, right? The employer doesn't mandate. We are mandated to so much training here in Ontario through the Ministry of Labor. And sometimes your employer mandates certain types of training, additional training they want you to have. But there is so much training out there that you can just take on at your own leisure if you care to. Some of it's free. Some of it is like we discussed paid through the employer, but it's there. And if you want to jump on that and build your own resume, you know, that these are all transferable skills that you can pick up along the way and you can make yourself uh, more marketable down the road. Definitely. No, I agree with you 100%. That makes sense. You know, you've worked 20 years in this profession. How has technology and social media affected your profession? I remember the days when... Well, I, I remember when I first got into the trade, we, uh, we we relied on fax machines and quarters at the payphone to, to communicate, or we carried beepers. If we wanted information, we had to drive back to our office to get that documentation printed out for us. Now with smartphones and, and laptops on, on job sites or tablets, we have information at the tip of our fingers. We can send and, and receive information almost automatically now. It definitely speeds up the process of getting a project done and being able to access certain shop drawings, for example, or building specs is almost, again, immediate where you've had you staff to wait, you know, days at a time to get this information. So it definitely does speed up the entire process of finishing your project. Definitely. No, I agree 100%. That does make sense. Uh, there's, I can, so much of what you're talking about there, I can, I can remember and relate to it. It. You know, you also can, I feel like you can collaborate with each other. If you're doing something, you have, you can take a picture or a video of it. And, you know, 
I got to believe that the ability to help each other has improved because of technology if somebody's not physically there with you. That's it. You make a great point, and especially with the photo evidence of being able to take a, take a picture or something, you can send it off to your, your colleague or, you, or your owner and say, this is a problem, Like we need to address this. Whereas before, it was, it was a word of mouth, that's how you documented things trying to remember from memory, right? Where now you have that physical evidence and it really plays a huge part going back to my health and safety experience. You can really identify, pinpoint and have a publication of something that is an issue and it can be addressed in a much more timely fashion because there's no arguing when you have a, a piece of photographic evidence that, hey, there's there's an issue here. Whether it's a worker working unsafe, whether it's your tool that's broken that needs to be taken out of service, it does help in that sense. And then going back to the social media aspect of it that you brought up, I'm able to collaborate, work with others, connect, especially connecting with other tradespeople in my field that I may have never would have ever met 10 years ago, right? And I can bounce ideas off of them and say, how do you do things out where you're working at? And that is the beauty of it. I've learned so many little things, little nuances along the way, just from chatting with other people that I would have never met before. Oh, that's powerful. I think that's a um, that's such a game changer because, like I said, they've got experience just like you, but they might just have a little bit of a different perspective. So, you know, that's a lot of brain power going back and forth and a lot of experience just, you know, collaborating and working together. So there's definite value in that. Now, I have to ask you this. You're part of the Optimistic Dad Club. Can you tell me about that? That was something that I, I think you'd shared when we communicated. I saw that also on your LinkedIn profile. Right. I'm, I'm part of the, it's the Optimist Club. It's nationwide. It's in the U.S. as well. And I'm also, it's two separate clubs. It's the Optimist Club and it's a club And the Dad, Dad Club. Club, yes. Yes. So the Optimist Club is basically a club that serves youth in our community. And what we do is try to spread positivity, better our community, work with youth. And that. I do a lot of volunteering. I have for years. And when I moved into the, the neighborhood that I'm in right now here in London, I joined the Optimist Club. And what we do is we create a lot of front fundraisers. Uh, we collaborate with a lot of local agencies to just make lives better for young people in our, in our area. And with Dad Club London, it's, Dad Club London is kind of the same, but it's different in the aspect we identified years ago that there wasn't really much of a support system for fathers raising their children. And so... We started this club that would uh, engage fathers. We, we connect through social media. We have live events. We have fundraisers. We raise a lot of money for uh, the abused women's shelters here in London. Other projects that we do, we, we jump into Pride. One of the, the nicest things that we've been doing is we've been getting into the Pride Parade every year. And what we promote is inclusivity and appreciation for all walks of life and welcoming. And that is something that's, uh, that's really important to us. And it's really important to me. I grew up in a household. My father was from Greece. He's, uh, he's very close-minded at times growing up. And where I grew up in Ridgetown, it was a predominantly white community. So when I moved out to the city, I thought, you know, I kind of want to be a little bit different than what my father was growing up. So and I, I wanted to pass off different beliefs to my son. So getting out here and getting involved with a lot of these organizations, especially with Dad Club London and getting into, into the Pride Parade, was extremely important to me and it was, it was important to show my son the values that I thought were important to me passed on to him. So. No, I agree. You know, I think we don't have to, you know, a lot of people are a product of their environment, but as we grow up, we can definitely change, you know? So 
you know, you can't let your environment make you. It's, you know, you've made a conscious decision to say, hey, you know what, I want to embrace, you know, inclusivity and, you know, find out about different groups. So, you know, that's something you made a conscious decision. And I think at the end of the day, a lot of it is just exposure, you know, and Canada is definitely a very progressive country. So, you know, like, so this is not something that shocks me. Now, speaking of, you know, exclusivity, inclusive, here, here's something I want to ask. We know there's a skills gap. And there are some, you know, there's a high percentage of older workers in the skilled trades. There's a lack of diversity in terms of minorities and women. And there are educators and parents who are pushing college. So these are three major challenges that the skilled trades are facing. I know we don't have the, you know, the magic bullet for it, but how do you think we can address some of these issues? And because they're, I mean, they're really critical right now. Well, I think our Minister of Labor right now is doing a phenomenal job trying to close that gap. He's, like we talked in the beginning there, he's made it part of his campaign to destroy a lot of the stigmas that have been out in circulating around the trades for years. You know, a lot of the myths around trade is a, a trade is a, a job. It's not a career. It's, it's not a long-term destination. It's not, they aren't lucrative. Uh, they're not meant for women. They're not meant for minorities. It, it, it's things like that that he's addressed to say, okay, this is enough. Let's talk about the realities of trade. And he's really started to celebrate women in trades. He's celebrated the differences in, in, in ethnic minorities and bringing people together. And he's made it very welcoming for everybody. That you, you spoke to an older, we're getting older and older. I think the average age of a tradesperson in Ontario is 55 years old. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's that's a very concerning statistic. And we have a projected shortage in the next 10 years of 100,000 people just in Ontario. And I think Ontario has a population of about 14 million people. So to have a shortage of 100,000 people is, is extremely concerning. And when it comes to women in trades, I think only 5% of the workforce in construction is women. And that, that's, a, that's a number that he's been really trying to address. So part of what's been going on with our government is getting into... Us to high schools into yeah basically high schools is where it started let's get out there let's get real trades people talking to young people rather than the guidance counselor like let's get real people the boots on the ground in there describing their stories and it's now trickled down to where we're starting to teach the basic skill trades in elementary schools it's like let's harness the, the creativity of young people and let's promote it from a very early age and let's talk to educators. Let's talk to teachers and, and start breaking a lot of that stigma that you need to go to university to be successful or you need to go to college to be successful because that's simply not the case. You can still go to university and college when you're a tradesperson. That's that's not out of the question. But you can get into a trade as a tradesperson without sixty, seventy, eighty thousand dollars of debt. And that's what we're really trying to highlight here in Ontario. So I, I think we're doing a really good job right now of addressing that skills gap. And uh, it's turning in the right direction right now. No, I agree. I do think that sharing the numbers, you know, the type of income that people make, I think definitely will make a big difference and will encourage people to pursue careers in the trades because the numbers talk. It's hard to, you can't deny the numbers. The numbers aren't just what they are. It's, it's, it's clear, you know. So wanted to know, what is the one thing, final question, you wish you knew back when you were starting your career that you think would have been most helpful to you? Oh boy, there's so many things looking back from the day that I started. 
but I wish I knew then. And I have the luxury now, I guess, at this point in my life where because I work with my son, who's a, who's a second term apprentice now, I get to have these talks with them pretty much daily. And sometimes it's as simple as go back to school. Like, do not be afraid to pursue higher education. Even though you're getting into a trade, prepare. Prepare for your exit out of trades one day. Broaden your skill set. Make yourself employable. Because I think a lot of people, especially people my age, you know, they're 45. Like, I'm, I'm turning 43 this month. There's people 45, 50 years old, and they're like, you know, my body's tired. I've, I've worked a heck of a career in the trades. I've made a lot of money. I'd love to pursue something else, but I can't because I don't have any skills. And that's uh, something that gets echoed around the circles on job sites that I'm on. And I've tried to address that. I, I got a start later in life where I went back to post-secondary education at 34 years old, I think. Now, I have a health and safety degree. I could leave the trade tomorrow, do health and safety full-time if that's what I chose. But I wish I would have pursued those kind of interests when I was 22, 23 years old. So I tried to pass on to my son is don't be afraid to go for more. Go back to continuing education. I try to talk to him about investing money. And that's that's one thing that we are not taught, not even in in, in schools, but even as creators. But we're not really taught about investing that money that we're making. We make so much money doing what we do. But then we turn around at 40 years old and it's like, but I don't have any money put away. Yes. I, you know, it's, yeah. And the schools, you know what? I think it's on the parents because we're, we're the ones raising our kids and who else has more interest in your kid being successful than you? Exactly. So it, it's, it's definitely on the parents and you are right. You know, you do have to, those investments will be, will be the difference with the type of life you're going to live you know, years from now, when you're in your 40s, 50s, 60s, and you're deciding to retire, it's going to give you your options. It's going to give you the options of the type of life you want to live, you know. So how's your son doing in terms of the advice that you're giving him? Is he, is he taking that in? And He's 19. Sometimes he takes it in, and sometimes it goes one ear out the other. But he's, he's doing pretty darn good. He's a good kid, and he's, he's ran with the opportunity, and he does. He soaks in as much information as possible. And my hope for him is when he's, you know, 45 years old, 50 years old, he can walk away from this if he wants. He can pursue a role of upper management or, or, or whatever he would like to do. He has that skill set. So, yeah, like his goal after. Yeah. Also, you got to think about it. If there's a shortage of people, there's going to be a vacuum for leadership. Absolutely. Yeah. And he's got his sights are high. Like he's talking about maybe getting an HVAC or a refrigeration apprenticeship after he finishes his sheet metal apprenticeship. And then owning his own company one day. And that complements the work that he's doing with Sheet Metal Work, doing the HVAC, because a lot of those a lot of those jobs, it seems like they work hand in hand. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. No, that's great. That's that's I think you definitely have him on the right path there. And if he's nineteen, he's so young. You already know that. Like, you know, nineteen, you've got so many years ahead of you and you're earning right now. Yeah, I hope he's. I hope I'm hope he's invested because he's going to be in a nice in a nice position, especially as you know you're earning a decent amount of money right now, and you know hopefully he doesn't have too many expenses. So no, well he still lives at home, so he doesn't have the expenses quite yet. Oh, that's, that's great. Save stays at home as long as you can and save as much as you can. And he was uh, he got in the trade like he got in the trade at 18 right out of high school, whereas I didn't get into the trade till I was 23. So yeah. by the time that he's 23, he could be licensed in the trade. 
Whereas when I started out, I was making $9 an hour. He could be making $40 an hour when he's 23 years old, which absolutely blows my mind. That is unbelievable. And yeah. like, like I said, if he's investing, even if he's, even if he's just saving 50% of that, you know, which is realistic if you don't have expenses, he's going to be in a nice position. I, I, and at the end of the day, you know, our kids follow our example. So, you know, if we're not running around spending, you don't strike me as somebody who's running around spending money frivolously. I mean, I don't know you, but you don't strike me as that type who just goes and blows money for nothing, you know? So they're going to look at your example, you know? So, well, I've had a, I've had sole custody of my son since he was six years old. Yes. So I've had to scrimp and save every dollar that I've ever had to raise him on my own. And he's seen me struggle. He's seen me work through this trade to to buy a house, to make the childcare payments, to make the vehicle payments. And he's saw firsthand how where that money goes and what you can obtain if you are smart with your money and your, your financial decisions. Definitely. No, I mean, they, they learn from our example. And uh, that's all we can do. Well, Nick, I appreciate you taking the time to be a guest on my podcast. I wish you continued success. I wish your son much success. And uh, let's definitely stay in touch. Please tell people how they can find you. You can find me on Twitter at Nick Tuntis or on LinkedIn, again, under Nick Tuntis. Same as my Facebook. Uh, I have a Facebook page for Skilled Trades uh, called the Skilled Trades Networking Group. Yeah, that's about it. All right. Well, Nick, thank you so much for your time, and I wish you a wonderful evening. Thank you, Keith. It's been a, it's been a pleasure talking to you as well. Thank you for listening to Skill Stadium. It would mean so much if you left a review on iTunes and told your family and friends about the podcast.